Jacob, 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 Jacob. Woo, how we doing? <clears throat> Guys, sad news for you. Tonight is our last night together. Oh, I can't believe it. This week just flew by. Uh, but here's what we're going to do tonight. We are going to take the perspective, take the focus away from Nebuchadnezzar. And now we're going to look at Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, who can tell me my main point from last night? Right there, orange shirt. Yep. We are saved by grace through faith. Yeah, that, that came from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, and it was just so sweet. Uh, I'm just praying that the Lord just keeps this, this image in my mind. When, when I see some of you stand boldly in front of your peers, some of you with tears in your eyes, because maybe you were convicted of, of your sin, but then at the same time just overwhelmed by the grace that God has shown us by sending his son so, so now we've been looking from the perspective of what if we're not God's people. Tonight, we're just going to look from the perspective of what if we are God's people. And, and let's see how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were resilient in their faith in a hostile culture. And that, that's what we're going to do. And when I say hostile culture, what that means is that Babylon was unfriendly they were opposed, directly opposed to God himself. They were hostile towards Daniel and, and these teenagers who would become men and, and their belief. And then resilience, and this, this is a word that I don't want you to miss, so we have the definition up here for you. The definition of resilience, if you ever hear that word, here's what it means. It's, it means someone who has the capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties. Or in other words, it's, it's toughness. And if you think of someone who runs a marathon, has anyone in here ran a marathon before? 26.2 miles. And this is one of my favorite things to watch in the Olympics because these people run a four to five minute pace mile for 26.2 miles. And they have resilience to continue at that pace. To, to withstand the difficulties that they're going through. And what we're going to see tonight is that God's people have resilience, the, the toughness, the ability to withstand difficulties, no matter how hostile our culture is around us. And, and here's something, as I was studying for this, it was kind of overwhelming just for me to process actually where our culture, where America is at in the year of 2023. So uh, I want to now kind of take a step back from the narrative of, of Daniel and just look at, at what we're dealing with here today. And in 2021, the New York Times posted an article, and uh, it, it was showing us that as the years go on, America is becoming more and more secular. And when I say secular, that means uh, no religious or no spiritual affiliation, that, that our culture is trying to go farther and farther away from God or, or religion, and in 1988, there was a survey that went out, and it was found that 70% of people, they would say that they know God really exists and that they don't have doubts about that. In 1988, 70% of people. 
In the next generation, when, when the survey was conducted, 63% of people said that they know God exists and that they don't have doubts about that. In 2018, now skipping ahead a little, this is my generation, the millennials. Uh, of the people who are my age, 44% would say that they know God exists and they don't have doubts about that. And, and the verdict is still out for what generation Z and then what Generation Alpha is going to say. But guys, this is heartbreaking to see uh, that it was 70% in 1988. And as the years go on, fewer and fewer of us are, are saying that, that we don't believe that God exists. And if you remember my slide from the gospel presentation last night, point number one was Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. That, that's the start of the gospel. We, we can't neglect that, that God exists. And there it says that God is evident through his creation. And that's the verse that told us that nobody is, is without excuse. Because God's existence, God's sovereignty is undeniable. But still, we're, we're in a culture where, where we're denying it. And so what do they believe if they don't believe that God exists? Well, most likely, six out of ten of my peers would tell you that everything came to be from, from the Big Bang and, and from evolution. And basically what that means is that billions of years ago, that there were elements that, that came together and then just this massive explosion and then atoms were created. And then over billions and billions of years, now we have breath in our lungs and our hearts beating and our, we have strands of DNA in our bodies and our, and our minds are able to think and we're able to communicate. And from this random happening of events, now we have giant sequoias and, and now we have pine cones. Guys, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 14 that a fool says there's no God. And I'm not saying that to, to, to slam my peers, but really it's just so foolish to, to even try to deny the existence of a, of a creator. And I told you night number one, if we could make complete sense of God, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. But I'm praying that as, as you leave camp, as you go back home, that you will not be a part of these statistics that, that deny the existence of God, but, but that's, that's just the start of the good news. I'm not saying that four out of 10 of my peers are following Jesus. I'm just saying four out of 10 of my peers would tell you that, of course, there has to be a God. And as we become more and more of a minority, here's what I believe will happen as we read the history books, that as Jesus followers are more and more of a minority, the culture around them will become more and more hostile to us and our faith more and more opposed, more and more maybe even violent of what's going on. And maybe generations from now, there will be physical violence. I don't necessarily foresee that happening in America, but, but what could this look like in our generation? I think as we become more and more of a minority, maybe there's going to be some mockery in the classrooms. Maybe that mockery will even come from, from your teacher because of this faith that you have in, in our indescribable God. And maybe in the near future, there's going to be laws that, that the government passes that aren't friendly towards churches or aren't friendly towards organizations like Hume. I, I don't know what it might be, but, but I do kind of get this sense that unless we repent, unless our culture says, of course there's a God and, and we're so desperate for Jesus, unless that happens, then, then the culture around us is going to get more and more hostile. So what we're going to focus on is how can we be resilient how can we stand strong in the midst of this opposition? 
But again, I, then I want to take an even further step back, and I want to tell you that America is not the first culture, is not the first country in this modern day, in this modern world that is hostile towards Christianity, that is hostile towards followers of Jesus. And I've shared with you that my job and, and alongside my wife, Sydney, we get to be a part of training and equipping people here in America that want to go to nations in the world where people aren't hearing about Jesus. And in these countries, it's insane to hear some of the stories of what national believers over there are going through. And if you have your notebook and if you like to read books, one of my favorite books, it's called The Insanity of God. And what it is, is this guy just goes around for to different countries and he interviews people who've gone through persecution, kind of like we read about in the Bible. And it's so eye-opening to read what these people over there are going through and they're just not denying Jesus because he's, he's worth their life and, and he's worth their death. And some of our best friends, Sydney and I cried last year when we saw some of our best friends move to North Africa. And they moved last September. And, and when they're still learning language and they're getting to know the culture. But in the country that they're in in North Africa, one out of 10,000 people are followers of Jesus. So as they're there, then they're the clear minority and they've, they've been attacked for their faith, and, and usually it's from an apologetics perspective, and they say, people look at them like they're foolish, and they're like, oh, you know the Bible is corrupt, right? Or are you serious? You really believe that Jesus is God? And I've asked them, friends, how do you stay strong? How do you be resilient for Jesus in the midst of so much opposition? You know, you know what their answer is? They know, they know who God is, and they know who they are in Jesus. And that's where it's got to start. We need to continue to just chase after God, to open his word and, and just beg that he would reveal more of himself to us. We, we don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor to, to go to God in prayer. Because of what Jesus has done to you, you can pray directly to God the Father. And if every single one of us prayed right now, God wouldn't be overwhelmed. He would know every single word that every single one of us said. There's not too much that we can give him. We need to pursue God. We need to be like my friends in North Africa who say, we don't care what people around us think of us. We just know who God is, and we know who we are in him. And that's exactly what we see in Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So what I'm going to do, remember when I gave you an overview of, of King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm kind of going to give you an overview and, and remind us of the stories that we've heard about, of what we've read in God's word, of how these teenage boys were ripped out of their home in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, which took weeks, if not months, and then they're in this training period, and then they stand before this wicked king, and then uh, they did it so well here in the play to show that uh, Darlene, aka really Daniel, He's actually old in his age by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6. But let's remember what happens here in Daniel chapter 1. And uh, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to because, again, this is going to be a quick overview of the book. In chapter 1, remember when, when Daniel, he's ripped out of his home and, and Nebuchadnezzar is playing God in his life, even down to what he eats and what he drinks. And Daniel decides to follow his convictions and risk his life and say, I'm not eating that food. He risks his life, and he risks the life of the chief eunuch, but he's resilient for God there. In chapter 2, Daniel is about to be killed by Arioch, and Daniel's like, wait, what's going on here? 
And then Daniel boldly says, okay, just go ahead and set up for me an appointment with the king. And then Daniel goes back to his buddies and they pray and beg that the Lord would reveal this mystery to Daniel. And God is so kind to, to reveal this mystery. And what does Daniel do if you remember? He doesn't say, I made the right choice here. No, Daniel's so quick to say, God gets all the glory. It's God who reveals the mysteries. In chapter three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They remain standing when tens of thousands of people are bowing down to this false god. And then they stand before the mightiest man on planet earth, and they say, we'll never bow down to this god that you give us. Our, our god is able to save us. And even if he doesn't, we'll never bow down to your gods, because we know the one true god, and they stand firm together in truth. In Daniel chapter 4, this is Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. And I love how bold and direct Daniel is. He's not scared to share the bad news with Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel's just the messenger. This is really between Nebuchadnezzar and God. And, and Daniel boldly shares this message that comes from the Lord and then it comes to pass. In Daniel chapter 5, now there's another king ruling Babylon. And we see the same characteristic in Daniel, that he's not scared to share the bad news, even if this king's going to hate him for it, because this is really between this wicked king and God. And then God's word comes to pass. And then Daniel chapter 6, one of the most famous stories from this book. We see Daniel. Do you know how old he is now in Daniel chapter 6? Can anyone guess how old Daniel was when he's thrown into the lion's den? 48? Try, try a little more. 50? 128? Okay, we're... 80. There it is. Daniel's 80 years old when he's thrown into the lion's den. He was a teenager when he's ripped out of Jerusalem. And now we have stories from, from teenage Daniel and then to, to grandpa Daniel. And still we see the same resiliency, the same characteristic in Daniel. And what happens here, if you can remember the play, uh, the, not the Nez, who is it now? The Beast. Because now there's another king who's ruling. And, and the Beast says that someone's going to be thrown in the pit of piranhas unless they, if they don't worship the tide, right? And, and what really happens there is, is King Darius, who's now ruling a different kingdom, and, and Daniel is still high up in this position, and the, the wise men at the time, they, tell king, they convince King Darius, like, just like happened in this play. They say, hey, if someone uh, prays to anyone else over this period of time, then they should be thrown into the den of lions. And he signs it. And then Daniel knows what to, what's at stake here. 80-year-old Daniel, but still he's in a habit of praying to God three times a day. And he opens his window boldly. And he's willing to just risk his life and live with resiliency because he cares far more about what his relationship with the Lord is like than, than what's going to happen here. This is a characteristic of God's people in Daniel, and then this, this is a characteristic of, of us today. What would it look like for you and for me to live resiliently for Jesus in an increasingly hostile culture? Man, that last song, I was just having a sweet time of worship there with the Lord and, and hearing you guys sing, just saying that, Jesus, you can have it all. You can have it all. And isn't he so worth it? When we, when we think of what we really have in him, that, that we have right relationship with God, that we have eternal life, and what I've been doing in the messages is just turning your eyes to eternity, but I want you to know that, yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but that's just the start of the good news. 
And a lot of us struggle with anxiety here in this fallen, broken world. A lot of us struggle with depression. Maybe some, some of us have even had suicidal thoughts before. But Jesus meets us right where we're at. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and then come to me. He says, come as you are. And we can bring our anxiety, bring our depression, bring our suicidal thoughts to him. And he doesn't always just fix it right there. Sometimes he does. But what's so beautiful, the Bible says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Bible says that, that Jesus can empathize with us in our weaknesses because he was also fully human. He had these same feelings, same emotions that he went through. So following Jesus, yes, it saves us for all of eternity, but now we have God Almighty, one, dwelling in us, and two, just right there with us through these hard times. He doesn't just leave us alone. And what I'm going to do, now I'm going to kind of exit out of the narrative of Daniel, because last night I left you with Jesus, who was dead, not just as good as dead, he was dead. And for three days, his dead body is in the tomb, and then he, he raises to life. We see the resurrection. But I want you to leave camp knowing what happens after the resurrection. And that's my goal here tonight. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, this is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay, when you're at Acts chapter 1, go ahead and say word. word. Awesome. Okay, here we go. What happens in Acts chapter 1, now this is the first book after, after the narrative accounts of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tells us about who Jesus is, what he did, what he said. And now we have Acts. We see the Acts of the Apostles. Now when Jesus left his followers, what happens? And in, in Acts chapter 1 verse 3... It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus ministered to his followers. He performed miracles, and then he died, and then he rose from the grave, and then he was still living, breathing, and walking here on planet Earth for 40 days. And I, I love, if you go ahead and read the end of the Gospels, it's so sweet to see the stories that we have of post-resurrection Jesus. And one of my favorite stories, I remember Harry sitting right here uh, uh, talking about when you know someone, you, you maybe get to know their middle name. And my middle name is Thomas. Thank you so much. And, and why I want to share that with you is because one of my favorite encounters with Jesus after he rises from the grave is with Thomas, who we commonly know in the church today as Thomas the Doubter. And why we say that is because in John chapter 20, Jesus has appeared to, to Mary Magdalene and her friends that went to Jesus' tomb. Jesus has appeared to some of the other disciples, but Thomas wasn't there the first time he appeared. And what does Thomas say? He says, unless I see the holes in his hand and I, unless I touch the hole in his side, I'm not going to believe this. And then eight days later, Jesus leaves, leaves him questioning for eight days. Eight days later, John chapter 20 says that Jesus appears to Thomas and he shows him the holes 
And he lets him touch the scars. And what does Thomas say, this, this big doubter, when he's just so convinced that Jesus really did rise from the grave? It, it's the highest declaration of praise that we have in the New Testament. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas gets it. He saw Jesus before he died. Now he sees the literal scars from this, this torture on the cross. And he, he can't not say, Jesus, you're my master. But not just that, you are God in the flesh. And Jesus, there's many more stories that I'd encourage you to read throughout the gospel accounts. But here's the last words that we have of Jesus before he ascends to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And I have four main points for you tonight, and they all come from, from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And the first is that I just want you to know Jesus has ascended. And to ascend literally means to rise. And I want you to just imagine that you're there on this day where, where you see this formerly dead, now living man who's performing miracles and saying amazing things, then starts levitating. And, and then there's clouds under him, and, and you're looking up in the sky, and then you just can't see him anymore. And then there's two angels right there. Can you imagine what it would have been like in that scene? In Ephesians chapter 1, what it tells us there is that Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's been given all authority. And in Romans chapter 8, I, I told this to you new believers yesterday, that Jesus didn't just stop on the cross. And he didn't just stop at the resurrection. But still, right now, this very second, for people who have followed Jesus, he's interceding for us to the Father. So I'm still, there's still sin in my life. I still fall short. But when Jesus sees me fall short, he looks to the Father and he says, I paid for those wages. He's mine. I paid for those wages. So Jesus has ascended. And here's what I don't want us to miss. In verse 8, it says, but Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you may have heard of the Holy Spirit before. In the Q&A time, this was one of the questions of can you explain the Trinity and the Trinity is that God is, is three persons in one being. And three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's so sweet. Like I said, Jesus, he, he didn't just leave us, but now he gives us literally his spirit. The spirit of God is inside of us for those of us who Jesus is our Lord. And I just love to see how we can study God's word with God's word. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 it says, and you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And what that means is that when we believed in Jesus, the moment that we declared, Jesus is our Lord, I'm all in for you, Jesus, you're my only hope. 
then immediately we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And where else do we see some, something or someone sealed in the Bible? It's actually in Daniel chapter 6, verse 17. And you don't have to turn there because I'm just going to read it for you. And this is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And King Darius, who's the king now, when, when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, then they close the den and King Darius seals the tomb with his signet ring. And what that means, it's basically the king's signature or the king's autograph. And what that says to everyone else around is that this den of lions is the king's and nobody's going to touch it. And nothing's going to change that. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which means that when, when someone or something looks at us, what they see is the king's. And no one's going to touch us. And nothing can rip us apart from the relationship that we have with God. Romans chapter 8, it also says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Once we're in Christ, that is sure. Nothing, nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God. That's in Romans chapter 8. Here's my third point. It says that we will be his witnesses. And Jackson, go ahead and throw that slide up that we will be his witnesses. And where does that come from? That's, that's the back half of verse eight. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here's this profound reality that when we look at when Adam and Eve were first created in Genesis two, that God trusted them with responsibility. And now as God's people, he also trusts us to, to be a part of him redeeming this lost, broken world. And the way that God saves people is through his people. It's a profound concept because God doesn't need us. God doesn't need me. But still in his grace and kindness, he chooses to use you and he chooses to use me to tell other people the gospel and how we can be made right with God. Not just in our cities, but to the ends of the earth. And then here's point number four. Look at that, friends. Jesus is coming back. The, the angels, the angels are like, what are you doing, disciples, just staring up at the sky? He's going to return the same way that he left you. Where else do we see that in the Bible? Well, it's in the book that we've been studying in Daniel. And you can turn here now. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And I'll give you some time to get there. I'll, I'll give you a little context of what's going on here in this verse. Does anyone know what a prophecy is? What, what does a prophecy mean? Yeah, something that tells the future. It's when God reveals to, to someone that what's going to happen in the future. So he reveals to Daniel something that's going to happen in the future, and it's actually the, the second return of Jesus. So Dan, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Literally 600 years before Jesus was on the earth, God gives Daniel this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So this Jesus who's going to come with the cloud of heaven, he has all authority on earth. And I just love how we can look at Daniel chapter 7, which was written 600 years before Jesus was here. And then Acts chapter 1, 600 to 650 years later, still talking about Jesus is going to return on clouds. Jesus is coming back. He didn't just stop at the resurrection. And you may be wondering a theme or seeing a theme in my messages. And man, Tyler sure seems to like it as well with my soul. I wonder if he's going to mention it again. And if you see verse 4, you'd be like, how could I not mention verse 4 of this hymn? And here's the, the last one, and I'm not going to be bold enough to sing it again. It says, and Lord, haste the day. I'll sing it if you sing it with me. Oh, man. Where's Roxy when we need her? <clears throat> And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Love you guys. So what does this mean? Again, Horatio Spafford is writing this above the grave of his daughters. And now he's preached the gospel to us. And now he's just longing for the day that Jesus comes back. And when it says, and Lord, haste the day, what that means is, Jesus, come on, come back quickly. We, we want you back. When my faith shall be sight, that means that what we believe in, one day we're going to see it right in front of us. Faith is belief in something that we don't see. And one day faith will be no more because it'll be tangible right in front of us. And the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The sky's literally going to open up. The trump shall resound. There's going to be trumpet sounds. And Jesus is going to descend from heaven. Jesus is going to come down. And even so, it is well with my soul. My soul is well. And guys, this is going to be the most terrifying moment when Jesus returns if people are still enemies of God. And this is going to be the most magnificent moment if you are Jesus' follower. Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to defeat all things evil. The Bible says that right now he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And right now in this small part of our existence, are we going to live for him or are we going to live for ourselves? But we as God's people can just long for his return. And I want you to know crystal clear, Jesus is coming back. So, so to conclude this message before we head to, to Victory Circle, how can we today in 2023, whether we're Generation Alpha or, or Generation Z or Millennials or whatever's above me, how can we live with resilience as God's people? Guys, we have to know God. And Harry said it so well that if you want to get to know someone, you got to spend time with them. And if you want to get to know the creator of heavens and the earth, the reason that I've been saying this is the word of the Lord and I've been asking you guys to say thanks be to God is just a reminder that this is from God. He's revealed truth about who he is, which we wouldn't have been able to comprehend if he didn't tell us. 
And then also truth about us. We need to spend time with him. And he's, he's given us this gift of the word. And maybe some of you, you're like, I want to read the Bible, but I just don't know where to start. Well, how kind of God to send you up here to camp with counselors and with youth leaders from your home that you can then ask them, where should I start? How should I study God's word? What have you done in your practice? And just ask them to mentor you in this. You need to spend time with them. Read God's word. Pray with him. You won't live perfectly. I would have failed you if, if you left here thinking that, okay, now Jesus is my Lord. Now everything's going to be okay. And now I'm not going to struggle anymore. And now I'm not going to sin anymore. Because, no, we're, we're still at battle with, with our flesh. We're still at battle with our sin. But now what Jesus has done for us is we're no longer slaves to that sin anymore. Now we have the freedom in Christ and his strength to walk away from that sin. But I, I'll be the first to tell you I still fall so short. I have this week. I've had prideful thoughts. I've, I've had judgmental thoughts. I've fallen short. But like I said, Jesus right now is interceding for me. So just know you're going to mess up. But his grace is right there. And be so quick to confess, confess your sin when it does come. And then here's my last statement that I want to leave you with. The same God that we're reading about in Daniel. And the same God that humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. The same God that did a mighty work here at Hume Meadow Ranch week three is the same God that is back at home. And, and it's been an emotional week. Sometimes we call this the camp high, but we've told you several times that truth isn't based on how you feel. And feelings are so good. God created emotions. And it, sometimes emotions turn us towards God, but don't use that as the, the filter for what truth should be. Because God is in Lodi. God is in Pismo. God is in Bakersfield. God's in Virginia. Where, wherever you are, the same God, God's in Fullerton. I see you, Fullerton. The same God that we worship is back at home with you. There's nothing special or magical about Hume Lake. Hume Lake is just a place where, where God has seen fit to bring people from, from so many different places and then have his word preached and then to send you back to those places to go and preach his word. Okay, I'm... I'm, I'm done now. <laughs> hey, let's pray. And, and then I'm sure either Harry or Melinda has some, some instructions for us. God, just thanks for that truth that uh, there really isn't anything magical about Hume Lake. There's really nothing magical about Babylon 2,600 years ago or, or about Jerusalem. Uh, but really you are, are ever-present, that you, you were present with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and you were present here this week, and, and you're not leaving us alone, but you're going back home with these students. Maybe some of them didn't, didn't come to know you, and maybe some of them are, are still in their pride and haven't in, in humility repented and turned towards you. Lord, it doesn't have to happen here. I just pray that it does happen at some point, either in the next week or, or the next year. Whenever it is, God, would you just pursue them and would you call them to yourself? With Victory Circle, Lord, I'm so excited to hear stories of, of what you've done. And would you just speak through us to, to just give all the glory and all the praise to you? So thanks so much for your kindness. Thank you for what you've done. Would you get all the glory, all the praise? In, in Jesus' name, amen.